Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. Additional support comes from State Street, produced by KUER. Hosts Sonia Hudson and Emily Means take a fresh look at politics the Utah way. Get episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or at statestreetpod.org. Good evening and welcome to The Hinkley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinkley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Robert Gerke, columnist with the Salt Lake Tribune, Sonia Hudson, political reporter with KUER, and Spencer Stokes, president of Stokes Strategies. Glad to have you with us this evening. Week three of the legislative session, we're hitting the midpoint. Lots of bills have come out this week. Some of them have really caught some media attention as well. And I want to turn to one, Robert, a story you broke uh, this week, which I think we're going to be talking about for quite some time, at least through the end of this legislative <laughs> session. It's about vouchers, but really not called vouchers. Yeah. It may be something called backpack funding. Talk a little bit about this bill that you've had a chance to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, vouchers became so toxic, they've come up with other names for it, uh, backpack funding. This is this bill is called the Hope Scholarship Program. Uh, Kurt Colmore has been working on this for a period of time. I, I don't know exactly how long he's been working on it, but what it would do is it would give families money uh, from the education fund, up to $36 million total for the entire program. Uh, the money would come out of the education fund. It would go to these parents who want to send their kids to private schools. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it, it, they call it a scholarship program. It's up to uh, almost $9,500 for lower income people, uh, just about 3800 for uh, sort of upper income people. Um, and and it could, the money could also be used. This is how they say this is different than the voucher movement we saw in 2007, is they say the money could also be moved uh, over for a tutoring program or some sort of online education or other sort of school or class fees. Um, so it's a little bit broader in its scope uh, of, of what the money could be used for. But, I mean, very clearly, it's, it's uh, private money, taxpayer money, going to private entities uh, to, to send kids to private schools. Mm -hmm. Spencer, I know you were involved in these discussions in 2007 uh, when we saw that bill. Was Senator Steve Urquhart was the one that, that ran it. Uh, any, what are the big differences between this bill that we're going to see now and what we saw then, which may give an, uh, some idea about whether or not it will be successful this time? Well, I think they've been more creative with this bill uh, and and taken other things into account. You know, the the Urquhart bill was just a pure voucher bill. Uh, I think this is this is something that they're trying to walk the line. I think the education community has already spoken. This is this is a voucher bill. We've seen the UEA already come out and say that. But the the, the bigger and broader difficulty is the question of who's in charge of public education in the state. Is it the governor? Is it the legislature? Is it the state school board? Is it local LEAs? And no one has wanted to grapple with that decision because anytime you've got a group of 104 people making a decision like this, you know, oftentimes you don't end up with the most cohesive and best public policy. And if you're gonna empower the state school board, then empower the state school board. If you're going to empower the LEAs, otherwise let's just go ahead and not continue the ruse and say that the legislature is in charge of public education. But I do believe this bill has a better chance of passage than the typical voucher bill in years past. Uh, which ended with a referendum, correct? Correct. 
All right, right. Came, they came right back, did a referendum, and uh, the citizens spoke and changed it. At, at some point, uh, you know, teachers need to have a voice in this, and I think the reason why this is different is there are students who need extra help, and this backpack funding could be a solution for that. Hmm. So, Sonia, it's, it's interesting because uh, we, we follow sort of public sentiment over time mm -hmm. on this particular issue, and I'm curious about the, the differences here. Uh, Speaker Wilson, when he uh, talked about this bill, he released uh, some polling he did with Dan Jones and Associates that showed that in Utah, 69% of Utah said they would support the money following their child uh, with them to where they want to go. 27% were opposed, 4% don't know. Uh, what might have changed uh, over the last several years since 2007 on this issue? I mean, I think that public schools have been kind of a, a, a battleground for lots of different policy issues, even, you know, partisanship. And so I think that you're maybe finding some people changing their mind because of that. Um, there is, you know, the school choice movement has been really big since then. Um, we've got a lot of discussions now about curriculum in public schools. So I think maybe people might have some more flexibility now than they did in 2007. However, I do think that if, um, if this bill passes, it will probably face another referendum. Whether that referendum passes, I have no idea, but I think that there will certainly be an effort. Jason, you brought up probably something that I think we glossed over quickly, and that is you said Speaker Wilson conducted polling. I don't think I can ever remember when when the legislature conducted their own polling, and I'm I've got to commend them for this because they never really have trusted other people's polling. But when they get to develop the poll themselves and find out what the people say, maybe they have a chance to look deeper into that polling and maybe, just maybe, they start thinking about what do the people of Utah want? And so I have to commend Speaker Wilson for deciding to take to take that, and I'm sure it was funded, you know, not by state dollars, but the point is they're trying to find out what the citizens of Utah, and I think that's important. Yeah, very interesting And point. I think, if I, if I could, I think it's important that they release that poll, the crosstabs, the questions that were asked, the sample size, they haven't released any of that, so we look at that with a little bit of a grain of salt right now. Um, but I think it also could put pressure on some of the legislators who maybe you're on the fence who think that, oh, my constituents just assume that their constituents don't support vouchers. Now they've got these poll numbers. Look, 69% support it. We need to see the rest of it. We filed an open records request after Speaker Wilson refused to release it, so we'll see if, uh, if they honor that and release them. Mm -hmm. Hey, Robert, will you give a comment about uh, Sonia's assertion here, too, which I think is so interesting, uh, particularly over the last couple of years with COVID. There is a lot of interest in what's happening at the school district level, uh, and parents yeah. are, are in some ways trying to reclaim some of their opportunities. Uh, do, you, do you think that that is something that is we, the legislature is looking at right now, and maybe that has accounted for the change in sentiment? Yeah, I mean, I think Sonia made an excellent point. Right now, uh, our schools are the new political footballs, the new political battlegrounds. We've got these movements to ban books. We've got these movements to screen curriculum. We've got movements to root out CRT, whatever that means, you know, to really be involved in setting the curriculum, understanding what kids are taught. And and it's, it's now turned into, you know, we saw it in the mask wars uh, where school boards were just deluged with parents who were outraged about what was going on in the schools. They're the new political battleground, and I think vouchers are just sort of another incarnation of that. We have Representative Johnson's bill, which I know we're going to talk about, that would have allowed parents to sue potentially schools or school districts over what's being taught. Uh, we've got Senator Fillmore's bill and, and Representative Tusher's bill that would require teachers to 
be transparent and put online what they're teaching in classes so parents can get out get outraged by it frankly i'm just um, trying so, to figure yeah, they, I'm just trying to figure out how we have a full functioning legislature who came through a public education system that none of this was a problem. I mean, I, I have no idea how we how we've gotten to this place uh, with with people who allowed teachers to actually teach in classroom. And this can be a future yeah. problem. I mean, when you have the the governor signing signing an executive order that. Uh, state employees can go teach in classrooms, you know you've kind of reached a critical level of how, how badly can you continue to treat educators before you don't have any educators? That is interesting, the governor well, did just I, sign this. Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead, Robert. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I told one legislator last week that if he wants to be a, a school, he, if he wants to be in charge of a school, he should go be a principal and not a legislator. Because, you know, they're, they're micromanaging everything right now. And, and, you know, it, it makes a mockery of having these local school boards even elected because they're going to be the ones who make the final decisions at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I think you've seen the legislature continue to insert itself more and more into decisions about what happens at schools from masks to now curriculum um, to vouchers. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting because I remember when Spencer Cox, when Governor Cox was campaigning for governor, he talked a lot about wanting to deregulate schools and just allow teachers to teach. And now it seems like the legislature has gone completely in the opposite direction of that. Um, and so for the party of deregulation, I think it's an interesting um, issue for them to tackle. It's still back to the governance issue. I have said if they're not willing to fix the governance issue, maybe the governor could go to the state school board and say, if you pass on a, by majority mm -hmm. on a bill, uh, I will veto any bill you take a negative uh, position on. Well, Spencer, not many know that you actually served on the state school board for a period of time. I've been trying to keep that a secret, yes. Okay, well. <laughs> Secrets out now, uh, a little bit too. What, what does that mean in your mind, in your experience, when you say fix the governance issue? Well, I I spent four years on the state school board, and as as much as I wanted people to know who I was and that they trusted in our our opinions, there are 15 members of the state school board. Put that in perspective, there are 29 state senators. So our our school board districts were roughly the size of two state senate districts, which is massive, and nobody knows who their state school board member is. And it is a, an organization that, I, I, there's not one, if I ask all of you, I'm not gonna put you on the spot, who's your state school board member, none of you could tell me. So let's, let's put the highlight on the person who is really, everyone thinks is in charge, which is the governor. And I think if the governor were in charge and had the veto power, he could actually negotiate some things with the legislature where the state school board is feckless on this. Very interesting. Any other bills we should be watching uh, before we go on to things like money, which I want to talk about? Uh, Spencer, death penalty? Absolutely. I think death penalty is one of the big bills. They have uh, really found a great sponsor in the sponsorship of, of this by Representative Snow 
and Senator McKay. They're two credible people on this topic. And I think the legislature at the end of the day, are, they're going to come down and say, when an inmate's sitting on death, death row for 22 years and 40 years, does that make uh -huh. sense? Uh -huh. uh, what are we spending to do this? And what is the greater punishment? And should the state be in the business of ending someone's life? So these are all, this is a, a debate that's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very heated. It's going to be very close. Mm -hmm. Sonia? Um, the, I'm looking out, there's going to be, it hasn't dropped yet, but um, they have hinted since the beginning of the session about some changes to the Inland Port Authority Board and um, Salt Lake City, I think, senses maybe some trouble coming for them there. Um, you know, the, the Inland Port, they want it to evolve into this kind of hub and spoke model where there's the main Inland Port in Salt Lake City, but then there's satellite ports all over the state. Um, and so they want to change the, the board to reflect that. Mm -hmm. And I think that'll be a, yes. a big fight. And Democrats, especially those from Salt Lake City, will put up a Big fight. Yeah. It's interesting we haven't heard about it yet, but I know it, it is coming. For I know sure. it's kind of just bubbling <laughs> under the surface. Preview there, <laughs> Robert. Yeah, I mean, I think both of those are great. I'm kind of watching for election bills this year. Uh, yeah. There's this initiative movement; they're gathering signatures to try to put an initiative on the ballot. But I think the legislator legislature has also indicated that they would like to see some changes made to our election system, especially among the people who are still believing that there was uh, election fraud in the last election and the last election stolen. So I think there's going to be bills that are moving. The governor kind of drew a line in the sand in his state of the state address that he's not going to let outright lies make policy. And so I think it, it, when those bills come, if they come, there's going to be a potential for a pretty big uh, clash between the legislature and the governor. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'll tell you one that just yeah, it was a couple of days ago I thought was interesting. This is uh, a representative, um, our Senator Chris Wilson, on uh, what's called wireless communication device. So those influencers who are uh, videotaping themselves while they're driving, giving lessons on life. No more. <laughs> <laughs> that one may be about over. Well, you, know, you always know when you see uh, someone with an influencer hat on. That's the, that's what I that's what I call it. Driving down the road, beware. Um, it's either a, it's an either an old man and a hat driving really <laughs> slow or a young person in an influencer hat. You got you to stare clear of those people. Yes. Uh, anyway, watch that one closely as well. Uh, I want to talk about money for just a moment because we're starting to see more of the, uh, the asks come into light uh, as everyone has a request for appropriation, which is what it's called when someone's asking the legislature for money, particularly for key projects. I thought it was interesting, uh, the, the actual numbers, about $1.3 billion in extra revenue, about $1.1 billion of that is one time. 219 million of that is ongoing. And uh, Jerry Stevenson, chair of executive appropriations this week, uh, let us know uh, $201 billion worth of asks. It's That's all probably it's mostly all, yours, right? It's, yeah, exactly. It's always more difficult <laughs> when there's a lot of money because everybody comes up running. And I, and I actually think years where there's a lot of money there, it's more difficult to sort through. Years where it's lean and nobody's going to go up there and ask, it's much easier to be a legislator. But, but when the word goes out, we've got a lot of money, you always know there's going to be a ton of asks. And people are always going to ask for more than they think they're going to get, right? It's like when you're negotiating a salary for a new job, you always, you know, start high and then see what you can get. Um, you never want to lowball yourself. And lawmakers and other organizations do the same thing. That is absolutely true. Robert, uh, I know you have conversations with these uh, lawmakers. Uh, what are you getting a sense uh, for of their priorities? When all these asks are in, what are they caring about the most? Yeah. I know they're telling you. 
I mean, tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts yeah. is, is what they were saying right out of the gate. You know, they've got the $160 million income tax. They've got $40 million that they want to do for an earned income tax credit and a social security tax cut. That's the bill that's uh, making its way through the House. Um, you know, and then there's, there's uh, you know, Speaker Wilson has made the Great Salt Lake Restoration Project a big priority. And, and I think that's very positive. We're starting to see some of those bills starting to uh, proceed through the through the system. And so, I, I mean, those are, and then, and then I guess affordable housing is the other thing that the governor sort of highlighted. And there's been a big commitment to doing something about that. So I, I would look for, the, you know, Lyle Hilliard, the old budget chairman, always said, you put the big rocks in and then build the little rocks in around mm -hmm. it. I think those are maybe the big rocks right now. Mm -hmm. Sonia, are, are you hearing that this tax cut is likely? Yeah, I mean, they are really, they've been talking about it since the beginning of the session. They're really into this idea. They're really excited about it. Um, you know, the House, like uh, Robert mentioned, has added some more, uh, $40 million more onto this tax cut um, for low-income people and people on Social Security. So um, I, I think it's going to pass out. They're, they're really excited about it. For all, for all the noise that gets made over the pieces of legislation that pass, the legislature actually does a very good job managing the fiscal part of our state. Do they get off on tangents on other things? Of course they do, like anyone else. But the fiscal side of the state is very well managed. They, they look at our state compared to other states around us. What are the income tax levels? What are the sales tax levels? And they do, have done a very good job. And they're going to take this one-time money and look at the future. And what do they need to plan for for the future? I think the, the development, for example, of our own state parks mm -hmm. is, a, is a visionary concept. And, and equally as beautiful as a lot of the national parks that are, that are out there, but don't seem to get the play. They're, they're fixing those up. They're emphasizing those to take the load off the, you know, the mighty five. So when it comes to budgetary issues, our state leaders have been superb. Okay. Uh, if, if I could, before we move on, yeah. just real quick. The, I mean, I think it's worth noting that this uh, big tax cut, the big income tax cut, is comes out of the education fund. Uh, the $36 million we talked about before with the scholarship program comes out of the education fund. So this is money that normally would have been going to education. Uh, education has done well, so maybe, maybe that's a justifiable position to take, but people should be aware of that. I think another thing that they have to address this session is some of the staffing shortages we're seeing in state agencies and some of the salary discrepancies we're seeing among state employees. I mean, we've got a staffing crisis at the prison system. We've got a staffing crisis at the state mental hospital. Uh, we've got to start addressing some of these salary issues and, and some of the staffing issues uh, this session. These are some great points. Uh, can we turn to elections for a moment? We've done some polling this, this last week on uh, approvals of some of our candidates. And I'm gonna start with you, Spencer, since you have a connection to Senator Mike Lee. Uh, you've worked with him for, for a few years. Uh, his, uh, his polling numbers are showing, well, st statewide down just a tad for the last couple of months, but he remains very strong with the GOP. 57% of the Republicans still supporting him. What kind of position is he in right now? Well, obviously, that's the number you have to look at uh, because there is a Republican, potentially a Republican primary. If the other two Republican challengers get their names on the ballot through the convention or signatures, uh, those are their two paths. Um, that is the key number. Look, everybody's uh, job approval rating fluctuates, and and oftentimes what I have seen over the years, it's tied to what the national, what's happening in the national uh, scene, the national stage. So I think you you would see that fluctuation happen, um, but 
Evan McMullen adds a, a new wrinkle, a new wrinkle to this. Um, at the end of the day, it's difficult. I know there's a push out there. It's difficult to get Democrats to switch over to be Republicans. I mean, um, what what Democrat do you know in their neighborhood that wants their fellow Democrat to know that I've just switched over to the party of Donald Trump? Uh, you know, that could be a hiss and a byword if any of their Democrat neighbors found this out. So I think he's I think he's okay. Uh, does he have to run a campaign? Yes, uh, all people have to run a campaign, but. His, the number to focus on is how he does with the GOP. Mm -hmm. uh, Spencer mentioned Sonia uh, Evan McMullen uh, is in this race. Of course, Becky Edwards, Ali Isom, uh, all, all still trying to make their case out there as well. But in, to some extent, a lot of this is down to money as well. And this was a pretty good week, a pretty good reporting cycle, I should say, for Evan McMullen on money. Yeah, he raked in about a million dollars, which was twice what uh, Senator Mike Lee brought in in the last quarter of 2021. Um, but Senator Lee has a huge head start on McMullen. He's been fundraising for, um, you know, years. He has a huge war chest, so he still has about double the cash on hand, I think, that uh, that McMullen has. So funding is always an issue. Elections very often come down to money, not 100% of the time. Um, thinking about Mike Bloomberg in 2020, who just dumped so much money into his race and it did horribly. But um, most of the time, money plays a really huge role in, mm -hmm. in who wins. And it's interesting also when you talk about McMullen, because if I, I think that if the Democrats didn't have a candidate, which they now do, Kale Weston has declared that he's going to run. Um, you could have had some sort of grouping together of Democratic voters and, you know, some more moderate Republicans who really didn't like Mike Lee coming together under McMullen. And then you would have had, you know, an, an actual really significant challenge to that. Um, but I think that having both Weston and McMullen, you're going to split that group of people and it's going to be no match for whoever comes out of the Republican primary. First quarters are always great for every candidate. It was the first report Evan McMullen filed if you looked at Becky uh, Edwards' first report, she did great. If you looked at Ali Isom's first report, did great. The one thing you have to look at is the, um, the massive cost that goes into running a national email letter campaign to, to get small donors. And although Evan is trying to appeal to a national audience to come in here and, and uh, take, take Senator Lee out, his costs are so high on that. And I, and I, you know, I don't want to be the one that points this out, but, you know, Evan McMullen still has $700,000 approximately in presidential debt, which is about what he raised uh, or cash on hand in this last report. So, you know, the, he, he potentially could use that money to pay off his, his debt, which leaves him at a zero. Uh, and I would think he would want to pay off the debt. But that's a question to be asked later yeah, down the road. That's right. Uh, let me ask uh, Robert. Uh, Spencer brought up just a moment ago some of these uh, these approval numbers are somewhat connected to what's happening nationally as well. I'm curious about your take on our our question for Senator Mitt Romney, which is interesting. He's had an 18 point increase in his approval ratings over this last year. Interestingly, just because I want to get your take on this, his approval from Republicans at 51 percent, Democrats 51 percent, unaffiliated at 54 percent. It seems like maybe Mitt Romney has not changed his positions very much, but uh, in, even within his own party, his numbers seem to be improving. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's, he's, it's, his weakness before in the state had really been with his own party, uh, especially among the Mike Lee Republican wing, 
right? I mean, there's there's no love lost between the conservative Republican wing in Utah, the Trump Republican wing in Utah, and Romney because of his votes on uh, on impeachment and so forth. So I, I think you know we sort of would should have expected his numbers to rebound a little bit, but he's also running fairly strong among moderates and, and Democrats, and so. Um, you know, that's the recipe for a pretty good approval number. You're always going to have your team. It's how much of the other team you get. Uh, and so, you know, it's, 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 it's short him up a little bit. I still think he's vulnerable, though, uh, in two years from now, if he chooses to run again, uh, two years from now with the, with the Republican primary or Republican convention, because there is a, still a lot of animosity in the Republican Party. There's no toward, question he would uh, need Senator to get... Romney. No question, Robert, he'd need to get signatures if he was going to run again. Absolutely. But I, yeah. I will tell you uh, just something I've been watching over the years between when you know you had Jake Garn and Orrin Hatch, Bob Bennett, Orrin Hatch, Mike Lee, Orrin Hatch. I don't think I've ever seen a greater collegial uh, relationship than between Mike Lee and Mitt Romney. Uh, their offices are right across the hall from each other, and they have actually been, and, and, and a little bit, you know, shocking so. Uh, the, their appreciation for each other is great, and they get along great, and it hasn't always been the case. It's always been somewhat of a competition between the two senators, and I used to joke back in the days of uh, Bob Bennett and Orrin Hatch, it was who could get to the fax machine first to send out their press release back in that day. I think that the two of them work very well together, and they have—they each have their strengths, and they each know that they can play on those strengths. So, in, in our last minute, one of the factors some are talking about is is sort of the, the Trump factor in the Mitt Romney approvals. Yeah. Uh, to, your, your analysis as to whether or not him not the president of the United States uh, not taking regular shots at Mitt Romney, if that's having. Some impact. One I think way it's or the having other. a huge impact. I mean, that's that's Mitt Romney's whole problem with his own party is his at times adversarial relationship with former President Trump, and so because. Trump has kind of been out of the spotlight and not attacking Romney recently. There's been no impeachment proceedings recently that I'm aware of. Um, and, but I think that, so Mitt Romney is up for re-election in a presidential election year. And I would not be surprised if former President Trump made a reappearance in 2024. And so that is gonna be an even bigger issue in the year that it matters most for Mitt Romney. And so that I think is is gonna potentially be a big problem for him. His, 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 his greatest gift probably was that Donald Trump doesn't have access to social media anymore, uh, so he can't <laughs> so beat up on people for that. Okay, we're gonna have to end it right there. Uh, thank you so much for your great insights, so, so informative. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.